Hi, this is Amanda from Silicon Valley, California. Dusted is a story wonk podcast. To show your support and for exclusive content, visit patreon.com slash storywonk. Thanks. And welcome to the show. I'm Alistair Stevens. And I'm Lonnie Diane Rich, and this is Dusted, your Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast. Bader. This week on the show, we begin season five of Buffy the Vampire Slayer with Buffy versus Dracula. Let's begin with a very brief mea culpa. We were wrong about this episode, you guys. This episode is not the disaster we predicted. We fell to the monster of the week problem that we often have, where we associate the entire episode with the strengths or weaknesses of the monster of the week. And then we come in and we find out that once you take that out, whatever that element is, there are a lot of really great things in this episode. A lot, As have happened many times before with monsters of the the week that we didn't care for, but which ended up, you know, the rest of the show around it ended up being really strong. As season opened go to this episode more than any that we've seen to date rewards careful attention it absolutely does and it sets up a theme that we're going to follow through through the rest of the season so i find it to be as much as we said this is the weakest of the season openers um not only were we wrong that it's not the weakest i think it's the strongest season opener we it's had. the strongest so far yeah, it won't so ultimately be far, the strongest right. but it is way up there <sighs> I have a lot of nice things to say about this episode. I have surprisingly a lot of nice things to say about this episode. And this just goes to show you that you cannot always tell by your memories of the Monster of the Week. That is the thing you associate that episode with. But there are great, wonderful things in this episode. And I'm excited to talk about them. Me too. All right, then. So this episode aired on September the 26th in the year 2000, coming back after a hiatus over the summer. That traditional May to September hiatus for Buffy the Vampire Slayer, back when TV scheduling was predictable, is what I'm saying. <laughs> Tell us a little about the writer-director team behind Buffy vs. Dracula. All right, Buffy vs. Dracula, written by dusted favorite Marty Noxon. This is the 17th of 24 total episodes that she will write for Buffy. We are on that downhill slope. That is a number that is only going to get sadder I'm as feeling we progress through season sad. five, six, and seven. I really am. I have grown to like Marty Noxon quite a bit. A I enjoy her writing style and I know she's not dying or anything. She's she's <laughs> going to be an executive producer that her influence is absolutely going to be felt. But I have to say I really enjoy her episodes and I'm going to be sad when we cover the last Marty Noxon. Yeah. I'm also looking forward to what remains I think her best work, mm-hmm. which we haven't hit yet. I'm given how much I have come to appreciate her script work oh, yeah. early in Buffy. Mm-hmm. I'm really looking forward to seeing what she does as we approach the end of the season. Yeah, she's fantastic. And for those of you who haven't been following her outside of her Buffy work, you really, really should. There's some good <laughs> stuff out there. Uh, this was also directed by David Solomon. This is the sixth of 19 episodes. He came on first with What's My Line Part One, also pairing up with Marty mm-hmm. Noxon at that point. Um, he did The Prom, Beer Bed, Goodbye Iowa, and Where the Wild <laughs> Things Are. So it's kind of a mixed bag. Bouncing around all over our best of Buffy list. <laughs> well, of course, the best of Buffy has to do with the storytelling, and that is not necessarily up to the director that gets assigned any True. particular episode. I think he's done pretty well. There were some weird directorial choices, I think, in Where the Wild Things Are. And a few in, in Beer Bad, yeah, too. Yeah. But he's generally strong when given strong work, and I think he acquits himself rather nicely I in this episode. I think so. He's called upon to do some 
very stylistic things and also to progress the Buffy aesthetic. Yeah. Moving into season five, Buffy kind of looks like a different show. It absolutely does. We're kind of evolving our visual style here. And I think Mm. that he is evolving with it rather nicely. I think that he sort of sets a visual tone for season five that we're going to see continue throughout the season. And partly that's just because our sets and locations have been revised. Mm -hmm. Some new locations entirely. The graveyard is not the graveyard. (laughs) We spent a lot of time in up until now. This is our new graveyard. But we also have new angles Mm -hmm. on existing sets. I think it's most noticeable in Giles' apartment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There are just some new angles that we get on that set which are more fluid and allow for more intimate work. Mm-hmm. We get more of that reverse camera angle looking yeah. back toward the front door mm-hmm. than we had in season four. Sure we do. Which I'm glad for because I really like that space. I like it too. It's of fun. all the locations we have in Buffy, most of which I'm a huge fan of. Oh, yeah. Giles' apartment remains one of my favorites. Oh, absolutely. It does. Really no, I really space. like it. Let's get right into it, shall we? Okay. We begin the season opening on a restless Buffy who is unable to sleep. She slips out of bed without waking Riley, who was still sporting that giant scar on his chest after pulling out his chip. Well, I should hope so. (laughs) Season four. (laughs) We then cut to the graveyard, which looks a lot bigger than it used to, where Buffy chases down and stakes a fleeing vampire. Back home, she slips into bed and is finally able to sleep. From there, we cut to the brand new season five credits. Welcome to the team, Emma Caulfield. Very nice. Who now has joined the main cast. And we also get, you know, a general revamping of the credits. We get a lot of new material from Restless, of all things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting. One of the few shots we get of Riley is him in Buffy's dream at the table with the gun. With that cool little slide under the glass table to look up at it. I mean, it's a great shot, and I'm glad that we have it. It is very cool, but it is not standard Buffy style. So it's a little weird to see something that actually didn't happen in real life right. happening in the credits. Whereas at least when we get Spike vamping for his photo shoot sure, sure. then that works. Yeah. That, that's consistent at <laughs> least with real world Spike. Exactly. Yeah. Not that mm-hmm. sitting behind a glass table looking smug isn't consistent with real world Riley either. Oh, we'll talk about that in a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> the next day, Buffy and Riley are throwing a football on the beach. The picture of healthy exertion and all American zest for life. Anya and Xander, Tara and Willow are watching from the sidelines, offering commentary as Xander tries to persuade the uncooperative fire to light. Willow has the necessary magical mojo to light said fire, but definitely isn't responsible for the instant deluge which drives them from the beach. We cut from there to an ominous castle and a thunderstorm where a heavy crate, apparently containing dirt, is unloaded from a truck. An arm bursts forth from the crate, claws open a jugular vein, and a black-clad figure bursts forth. It's a pretty punchy cold open, all things considered. Oh, there you go, yeah. The thing that this establishes that we're going to have to deal with throughout this episode is the Dracula problem. Yeah. And it's not just that Dracula as a singular Buffy character doesn't work. It's that this episode is weighed down, loaded with references. Yeah. The rain coming in, the storm coming in, the castle, Mm -hmm. of course. (laughs) Yeah. The crate of dirt. Mm Mm-hmm. All of that stuff actually has nothing to do with Buffy the Vampire Slayer at all. It's all reference and homage, mostly to the original book, Dracula, but also occasionally to the extended network of of movies and other alternate depictions and adaptations surrounding that character. Based on that that Bram Stoker original character, yeah. Mm -hmm. So how does that stuff work for you? Because you're not, weirdly, a Dracula fan. No, I don't think there's anything weird about that. Well, no, I say weirdly only, beca- only because we spent the last two years doing a show about a vampire slayer. <laughs> I saw, you know, 
the Bram Stoker's Dracula movie because Johnny Depp was in it. So, I mean, I was a young girl in my 20s at the time. I was going to watch that. <laughs> um, also watch Vampire Lestat, see above re Johnny Depp, replace Brad Pitt, Tom Cruise. Saw that as well. Um, but it's never been a thing for me, the vampire thing, especially the Dracula thing, the specifically mm. Dracula thing. I've never really been into that as, um, you know, as a storytelling trope. I've never watched these movies. I haven't read the comic books. I haven't read the books. It's just not something I've been particularly interested in. So I think they might be even less rewarding for me than they are for people who get those references. I don't know. You get them all, right? You know all this stuff cold. Yeah, but in what is a really interesting and unusual set of circumstances, I think that really it's a wash. Uh Because if you get the reference the references aren't substantial enough they're not meaningful enough to really carry their own weight anyway so if you get the reference to the three sisters if you get the fact that riley is apparently being cast in the jonathan harker role throughout this episode Mm -hmm. if you get that stuff it's still flimsy it's still insubstantial so i'm not sure that Usually when a story is this rooted in a particular reference, then those people who get the reference get the story. And those people who don't are kind of left on the outside looking in. Mm -hmm. In this instance, I'm not sure that either side is better served by the specific reference that's being made by the specific you know, elements of pastiche. You don't need to know about Renfield specifically to enjoy or not enjoy Xander eating bugs. The reference is broad enough in its general application that it works and hollow enough in its specific application that you don't get a huge advantage by being a fan of the original novel. That's interesting. So it doesn't really serve either population very well. Well, I can only, you know, comment upon it from the perspective of someone who knows the source material, who knows the original novel and who has a passing awareness of, of Dracula in popular culture. For me, it didn't add a great deal, and it was more often than not distracting. I think the only thing that definitively worked better for me than it did for you is the inclusion of the three sisters. Yeah, I had no idea what that was about. Why were these three vampires seducing Giles instead of eating him? the show makes no effort whatsoever (laughs) to inform you, to reassure you, to explain that. Yeah. And ultimately, we just forget that it ever happened. Well, you know, we really do. And there's also a lot of things with Dracula that don't match up with the realities of the Buffy the Vampire Slayer world (laughs) that we have spent a long time setting up. Well, I really like that, actually. I love the way that Spike just attributes (laughs) all all of Dracula's... You know, extra vampiric powers. Yes. He just attributes them to gypsy magic, which is great. That's perfect. And not nominally inconsistent with the character from the novel. It could well be the case that Dracula, in addition to being a vampire, is also just armed with with gypsy sorceries. I could get behind that as an explanation. And it certainly works well enough to explain why Dracula is so different from well, the vampires that we experience on a week-to-week basis. of vampirism apply to Dracula. Dracula being something other than vampire, I would buy. Mm-hmm. But it's one thing to be vampire plus, you mm-hmm. know? I mean, that's one thing. But it is, it's not vampire, and then it's plus all these other no, things. No, because we've he already seen... He has the fangs, but he doesn't have the bumpies, you but know? we've already seen what vampire plus looks like, and it looks like the master. Right. Because he's not can't... a vampire. No, he is a vampire. He's a vampire who also has... All kinds of extra powers that he learned from gypsies. 
No, it doesn't make any sense to me. I still don't. I don't like the way it completely breaks the world. Like the rules that every other vampire has to live by. He does not. Well, the choice is that he's a different brand of vampire. And I think that you need to acknowledge that it would be one thing if he had all of the vampiric qualities and then some extra. Mm-hmm. But that's not what he has. Well, apart from the transformation, he has Apart everything. from being dusted and being able to reformulate himself, apart from... Well, I would argue that's a pretty fundamental extra power. Mm, yeah, no. Narratively speaking, it seems to me that you only have two choices. The first choice is to present Dracula as a Buffyverse vampire, which means that you don't get to do all the direct textual references that they want to do in the episode. You don't get to have him hypnotizing Xander and turning him into Renfield. You don't get to have the the mesmeric effect on Buffy. You don't get to have the reforming at the end of the episode, which arguably the episode would be wildly improved by cutting that anyway. That's fine. (laughs) But if you want to do the reference, then you have to set Dracula apart. You can't make him not a vampire because being a vampire is the thing that Dracula is. He's more a vampire than anything, more a vampire than anyone. So you have to somehow explain away all of his extra abilities. And I love Gypsy Magic as a catch-all Band-Aid solution for that problem. It is interesting, though, that in its original conception, this episode wasn't going to be Buffy versus Dracula. The frame of the episode was already prepared, and it was just going to be a random, apparently cowboy-themed vampire coming to Sunnydale. Oh, gorgeous! And we kept talking, apparently in the writer's room, about how he was going to be powerful and seductive and moody and the term that's bandied around at least in accounts of the writing process is like dracula up until joss whedon said well why not dracula he's public domain (laughs) we said at the beginning of the episode that. that we like this episode more than we expected to yes had this not been dracula i would have liked it much much more it might well be one of my favorite episodes yeah yeah in any case, at Giles's place, Willow has fixed his computer and is helping him to scan the dusty archives, albeit reluctantly. Giles is getting ready for his return to England, but he doesn't want to deprive the Scoobies of his most valuable contribution to the cause, his bookshelf. Willow protests, but Giles is resolute. He isn't needed anymore, and the Scoobies will be fine without him. It's a beautiful scene. It is. Oh, my God. I think the stuff that I love most in this episode is the Giles stuff, first with Willow and then, of course, later with Buffy. I love the way Willow is arguing with him. No, we totally need you. We completely need you. You know, I can't stand a day without a little hairy eyeball. Who's going to watch the rest (laughs) of us? It is so incredibly sweet. And I love the relationship between Giles and Willow. We don't get a whole lot of that. It is mostly Giles interacting with Buffy throughout the uh, all of the seasons. But Willow is kind of his protege. Willow is very present with him. And like that one moment in Doppelgangland Mm -hmm. when she really is the best of all of us. And then then Giles jumps in and gives Willow this huge, huge hug, which is completely out of character for him, but totally right for that moment, for him to express that much emotion. Willow obviously has a very, you know, tender place in his heart. Oh, yeah. And it's so sweet to see just the looks that the stuff that that Anthony Stewart had does with just a look at Willow throughout this episode when especially when she's trying to you know show how much they all need him and he sees <laughs> completely through it and is just this gentle acknowledging smile and he keeps on his path um it's really incredibly sweet and i kind of love that he chose to confide in Willow first well because he's definitely grooming Willow 
to be his replacement. Yeah. Which is, I think, the root of their relationship. He has a respect for Willow as a peer that he doesn't have for Buffy. Not to suggest that he doesn't respect Buffy. His relationship with Buffy is primarily a personal one and then secondarily a professional one. Yeah. His relationship with Willow seems to be primarily professional. And yeah. secondarily personal, secondarily rooted in a deep affection. Yeah, he has an a incredible affection for her. Yeah. But he understands and has understood now for a very long time that Willow is serious business. Willow is a proto-watcher. Yeah. You know, perhaps not a capital W watcher, but certainly a lowercase <laughs> w. We'll give Willow the lowercase w to match her already existing uppercase w. It's a very complicated situation. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's a great scene and... I really like the arc that we get from Giles in the episode. I love the establishment of the new status quo at the end of the Mm -hmm. episode. Does it feel authentic to you coming off the end of season four Mm -hmm. and filling in, you know, backfilling this experience, this this mysteriously absent long summer that has passed Mm -hmm. in Sunnydale that we never get to see or experience? Does that work for you that Giles has, has wound up at this place after... You know, three months, four months. I think it absolutely does. I think this was the place that he was always heading toward during season four because his role had been diminished. And and as he says in this episode, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's where it should go. His his slayer is growing up and she doesn't need him anymore. And he should give her space to, you know, stand on her own two feet. With of course the support team and with of course Willow standing in as as you know somewhat watcher, you know. So yeah. um I like that. I think it makes complete sense. I think this is a place that he was always coming to, but which at the beginning of season five, you see him, he's already made his own peace with it so that he can then approach everybody else with it. I guess that's the problem that I have. And that's a problem that's going to remain with me throughout Giles's dithering mm-hmm. about his, his place in the world. He acknowledges that Buffy needs that support system. Yeah, He acknowledges that he can train Willow to be a more essential, more powerful part of that support system. Mm-hmm. But he himself just wants to return to England. And there's nothing in that desire to return to England that kind of speaks to a deeper motivation. Well, he talks in this like, episode, yeah. I want to get a life, which is cool. But there's nothing specific there that he's moving toward. And you would think in the absence of necessary motivation drawing him back to England, Mm -hmm. had he decided, for example, that what he really needed to do was to go back to England to talk with the Watchers, you know, bang a few heads together and get the Watchers Council back on the right path. Yes. Then that would be a viable goal for him. That would be an important motivation. And we would understand his desire to leave Sunnydale. But as it is... He's just been, you know, bumming around for the summer. Why not stick around for another year or another two years or another five years? Right. Well, because it's about going somewhere. For protagonists, we often talk about this, Mm -hmm. that having an active, specific goal matters a great deal rather than an avoidance. So, you know, even though whenever you go somewhere, you are of necessity leaving where you are, Mm -hmm. one of those is going to be primary. And this is about him leaving Sunnydale. It's not about him going to England. I think that, yes, a little, a line in there saying, you know, I think that I can be valuable for the Watchers Council for kind of bringing them into, you know, this new stage of, of watching Slayers in a new world and understanding all of this stuff and helping them with their research, gaining access to those mm-hmm. um, to those ancient scrolls that we don't have right now. Better yet, yeah. if he believes that by returning to England, he can be of more help to Buffy. Exactly. Then everything kind of slots into place at that point for me. As it is, 
it maybe does feel ever so slightly, you know, rootless, ever so slightly self-pitying. Maybe there is. A I, bit. I didn't want to say, it, but there is almost, no, there's almost a little bit of that. I wouldn't yeah. say a lot, but a no, little just bit. Just the faintest, just hint. a hint of it. And as right. I said, I love where we end up at the end of the episode, mm-hmm. so I'm not going to to pick over it too carefully. But yeah, I think yeah. that offering him an alternative would have strengthened this entire season, uh, this entire scene, and also strengthened his arc through season four. Oh, had he yeah. actually been conflicted, if it wasn't a choice between you know being Buffy's watcher or nothing, right? And had been a choice between being Buffy's watcher or doing good, doing important work, finding a role for himself. Right. When Willow can absorb his role there so he can go and do something exactly. else, rather than having Willow absorb his role so he can go and do nothing else and in, in specific. Then we get I to talk about sense. Willow's mm-hmm. sense of herself and her place in the world. Is she certain that she wants to be Buffy's right. watcher? Is she yeah. certain that she's ready for this responsibility? Because as it's presented in the episode... She seems to be pretty confident that she can do Giles's job. She just wants to keep him around, yeah. which I completely understand. That's not a weakness in Willow's character. That's actually a great strength in Willow's character, mm-hmm. that it's not about his professional contribution. It's right. about keeping him in Sunnydale, keeping mm-hmm. him in their lives. That's all great. We could, though, have taken this opportunity to tell much more ambitious and much more interesting stories. And it really would have taken a line or two. Yes. It really would have been... A very, Just very quiet, very simple. Out. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. A simple gesture would have made a world of difference in the storyline. Mm-hmm. For all that, though. Just a great scene. It is. It's wonderful. Anytime those two can act opposite each other, I just love it. I know. At home, Buffy and Joyce finish dinner, and Buffy heads out on patrol. She claims it's a drag, but she looks like she's having the time of her life as she battles and stakes another vampire, all under the mysterious watchful eye of a cloaked figure. He compliments her on the fight and introduces himself. He, it turns out, is Dracula. (laughs) Let's talk a little about the performance. Yes. I don't feel like there's another direction you could go with Dracula. Not if you want to maintain Dracula. Yes. Not if you want to maintain the reference. Not in the year 2000, anyway. If you're referencing the book, within the pages of the book, Count Dracula is an elderly man. He is (laughs) white-haired when Jonathan Harker meets him. Of course, he also, when Jonathan Harker meets him, has a bitching mustache. (laughs) That's not something you generally associate with vampires in general, or Dracula specifically. You could have gone to a more traditional depiction, Mm -hmm. but that's not what Dracula is in the pop culture. Well, yeah, it's all about the seduction, you know, and and that's a big part of that. Does he work for you? No, nothing about Dracula (laughs) works for me. And part of that may be because I am lacking that kind of cultural, you know, reference base to draw from for this stuff. Um, That's not the reason that he doesn't work for you. (laughs) I just, I mean, I don't think it's the actor's fault. I think this is a a choice that was made in the writing, in the direction. that This is where we're going to go with this character. I believe that was how he was directed to act. So I'm not laying blame at that guy at all. He's he's being Dracula. I think the problem is that that Dracula feels very much shoehorned into a world in which he does not belong in a world which every time we have a scene with him feels like it's actively trying to evict him he does not belong in sunnydale this is not where this story happens you're absolutely right and it made me think of our approach to slick urbane modern evil Mm -hmm. within angel yeah had he shown up like Lindsay mcdonald Mm -hmm. had he shown up in a sharp suit with a great deal of personal charm then I could have bought some of the story that's laid out for us. I could have mm-hmm. bought some of the, you know, implied and informed attraction 
Right, but if that's who, again, if you change Dracula, then he's no yeah, longer Dracula and exactly. you're not making the reference. I think it would have been infinitely more interesting if they had played Dracula as not a vampire, as this great irony that he becomes, you know, the representation of all vampires because he's he's actually something else, but is so in love with the myth of vampire that he has actually, like, moved into that space culturally, but it's not what he really is. I think that would have been more interesting, but again, then you're missing all of those references, if yeah. you change vampire, and or if you change like Dracula, fundamentally, yeah. you end up with a really clumsy exposition scene mm-hmm. where yeah. Giles looks up from a book and says, he's not a vampire at all. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you certainly could do that. You certainly could. I think could. that would have been more interesting. Would, yes. I would but have liked it more. You still end up burdened with the reference. You still yes. end up burdened with the homage. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure... That that maybe helps the logical consistency of the episode, yeah. but I'm not sure that it helps the actual structural problems. I think of the I think the the why not he's public domain is where all of this started. I think you're entirely right. <laughs> Willow and Xander, meanwhile, are wandering through the graveyard discussing secrets, all while Buffy and Dracula face off against each other. Buffy loses patience and gets stakey, but Dracula gets misty. Xander and Willow show up, and Dracula appears behind them, impressing the hell out of Xander before wielding his powers of unholy CGI transformation magic and turning into a bat. At Giles's place, the Scoobies share the news. Buffy is excitable, Tara is maybe a little jealous of Dracula's sexy, and Anya reveals that she and Drac used to hang back in the good old evil days. <laughs> Thank you for your contribution to this episode, Anya. You can see yourself out. <laughs> That's all they give her. Uh, no, and that's tragic. The yeah. episode in which she appears in the title credits because yeah. she's now in the main cast and she gets nothing to do. We go to the trouble of establishing a pre-existing relationship between Anya and Dracula because that's where the joke is. Right. But we don't do anything with it. Except use it to make Xander jealous. Which is the least interesting thing that we can do with Xander. Right. And also the least necessary because Xander is very quickly going to have a plot all his very own. Exactly. And he doesn't need to play that role. So we sideline Anya completely. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, maybe in a season four episode wouldn't have bothered me so much. Yeah. But now she's in the title she's credits. She's in the title credits. Let's <laughs> give her something interesting. But I want to hop back a little bit into yeah. that graveyard scene where Dracula first shows up. Because we have this wonderful back and forth between him and Buffy. We have this moment where she says, do you know what a slayer is? And mm-hmm. he says, do you? This is the stuff that works. Mm-hmm. Pointing toward the evil within the slayer. Pointing yeah. toward the dark the root of her power. Yeah. And coupling it with her recent hunting. Mm-hmm. There's a great deal of narrative there that's expressed very, very simply. Yeah. Because we understand that Buffy chasing down vampires in the graveyard and staking them so that she can sleep. Yeah. That that's not okay. We understand that something is wrong here. Or I that think. something is is different here. Something has evolved here. Yeah. You know, and it's become more complex. It's become different. And I really like that we're going in this direction, that there is an essential mystery at the core of who Buffy is herself but, that we need to sort of unpick. And the problem here is Dracula. Because the story has to be about Dracula, whereas the story should be about Buffy. Had Dracula not been, you know, the Prince of Darkness, had he not been this famous figure, had it just been a random character, or had it been the return of Lyle Gorch to Sunnydale. (laughs) Oh, I would have 
loved that. That would have been fantastic. Miles awesome. We could have kept the focus where it needed to be, which is on Buffy. Absolutely. I mean, this, the most interesting thing in this entire episode is this essential darkness at the heart of Buffy that we open up with her leaving her bed with Riley or leaving Riley's bed and uh, and going out into the night and hunting, mm-hmm. you know, and then we see her do that once again. She leaves, you know, Joyce at dinner and goes out and patrols. But that's more normal. It's it's, well, a, it's an obligation. But now it's a hunt. She yeah, needs it. Exactly. And we don't spend enough time, well, I think, on that beat in this episode because we're so dedicated to, you know, applying all of these Dracula references. See, I do think that we spend enough time. I do think that story is there. It mm-hmm. is in the episode. It's a little subtle and you have to look for it. You have to pay attention to Buffy's actions throughout the episode. Right. But you're right in that it's overshadowed. I, I think, think, I think what's front. there does work. But Riley being upset about Dracula is stupid. I'm, Riley being upset that she's crawling out of his bed in the middle of the night. I am not disagreeing at all. I think you're entirely right. <laughs> that's but, more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But, but that's not to suggest that the episode that we get is devoid of this interesting material. Oh, about no, Buffy it's and there. Yeah. I just think that it should be the focus. And you're right. Once Dracula is in a space, it sucks all the air out of the room. There's no space to really look at anything else. What's really interesting, though, is that this, I mean, I don't want to, you know, break the timeline or, or foreshadow too heavily, but this really is one of the stories that we're going to be dealing with throughout the entire season. Yeah. To establish that so firmly to draw on season four you know as we commented at the end of season four Mm -hmm. this was the only time that they were assured of renewal while producing Buffy Mm -hmm. so they really could tell one long story and there is a compelling argument that season four and season five actually combine to make a stronger story than either season does apart I think that's absolutely true and we will see a little bit later in this episode another reference to something that we had foreshadowed in season four so Anya has been sidelined during the discussion at Giles's place. Giles has coordinated a research team, and Riley takes this opportunity to talk about how cool the initiative used to be. Hey guys, remember when, when the initiative was, was really cool and Riley was no, the necessary think, part of the team? I don't think anybody remembers the initiative being cool. Yeah. Riley and Buffy say goodnight, and we cut to Anya gushing about Dracula as she and Xander walk home. They part at the corner, watched by a wolf atop the espresso pump. But once Xander's alone, he's approached by Dracula himself, who lays the mystical whammy upon Xander, hypnotizing him into servitude and leaving him a giggling loon. I said earlier that I don't think the episode is improved by foreknowledge of the reference material. Mm -hmm. I think Xander may be the exception, because he is specifically transformed into Renfield. Right. I actually felt like Nicholas Brendan did this in an interesting way. I was, okay, how do I explain this? I don't like it as an element of Xander's character, this, you know, idea that he is the the weak-minded one that can be turned instantly into the the manservant. The but, butt monkey, if you will. The butt monkey. But I love Nicholas Brendan's performance, yeah. and I have always been delighted by Okay, these jokes in the moment to me, I find very amusing. I yes. find Nicholas Brendan's performance delightful. In the bigger arc of the story, I find that element to be less, uh, I don't know, um, less appealing. The I elements think. that play to Nicholas Brendan's strengths as a performer, I really enjoy. His kind of sweaty awkwardness yeah. really works. And as awkward as it is, as as almost frame-breakingly high concept as the mm-hmm. Bater joke yeah, is. Yeah, I love that, obviously. Well, the first yes. beat is 
strong. Yeah. The second beat is is perilously close to like sitcom writing. It's perilously close to to being Chandler could have done that. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I like it and I appreciate it. By the time we get to fidgeting and bug eating, that's nothing but reference. Okay. I, yeah. I don't think we need that, that didn't at that point appeal to me quite as much. Um, I I do like. I love what Nicholas Brendan does with the material. I find the material to be funny yeah. overall as part of a consistent Buffyverse story. It felt off to me. Some of it is wasted opportunity to seducing Xander to the powers of the dark side by offering him immortality. As a vampire, which is like the one thing that Xander hates more but than anything. That's the reference. That's what Renfield wanted. That's yeah. one of the things that was used as leverage on Renfield in the original book. So... There we I'm, are. I'm torn. In the moment, it's funny. I love Nicholas Brennan's performance. But Overall, I don't find it. It's a missed opportunity. I don't think it works that well. Because we could leverage Xander's loyalty with something that's a little more, you know, distinctively Xander. Yeah. We could use his insecurity about Anya, for example. Mm-hmm. We could offer him power so that he can stand with the other Scoobies and actually be a part of the team. We could offer him something that speaks to who he is as a character rather than just making the reference. Well, and making him a vampire, which is one of the things that, I mean, Xander still remains, even though he's under the thrall, like he still remains Xander, or he should anyway. He should. Yeah. (laughs) Riley, meanwhile, slips into Spike's crypt where he finds Spike armed with a crossbow. Riley asks him about Dracula, who owes Spike 11 pounds. He's just a vampire powered up with gypsy magic, and Spike isn't terribly sanguine about Riley's chances taking him on. The boy clearly has something to prove, and even manages to intimidate Spike into backing down before he heads off into the night to find Sunnydale's newest undead celebrity. How much of Riley's desperation is reference? How much is it caused by his jealousy of... Buffy's, I don't know, fascination with Dracula? Mm-hmm. And how much is this just Riley's character in a post-season four world? Well, it's not. None of this is inconsistent with Riley in post-season four. So, I mean, out of all of the characters, yeah. I mean, you know, this is something that we're seeing in him, this this jealousy, this this essential insecurity that he has. I can see that with Buffy. It is not his finest characteristic. It's certainly not a storyline that I enjoy. Mm-hmm. When he faces off against Spike, though, he is driven and honestly badass in mm-hmm. a way that I feel like we haven't seen since the initiative, at least, when he was augmented with that super soldier serum. Yeah, but he also is in a room with a vampire who can't fight back. It seems more like bullying True. to me. And it well. feels like that essential. I mean, okay, let's let's just say... <laughs> Spike deserves it, obviously. Spike is a monster. He would kill everybody in that town if he could, although when he didn't have the chip, he wasn't very successful at that anyway. But he prevented the apocalypse. Let's remember yeah, that. Yeah. He would he would cause a lot of problems. Like he's not a good guy by any means, you know, is Spike a good guy. But Riley is in a situation where he knows that Spike can't hurt him. Mm-hmm. And um and he has this line, well, she won't kill you because she feels bad that you can't fight back. I don't have that problem, you know? Um, and I think there's something about that, about being that way with somebody who is essentially weaker. You compare him with Giles, right? Mm-hmm. When Giles interacts with Spike, in no way is Giles fond of Spike, but there's this point in season four where he goes to Spike and he says, well, here's an opportunity for, I don't know, redemption. This could be a path for you, you know? Right, but Giles and Riley are 
completely different people. They are I completely mean, different people, but I think it also shows that Giles doesn't have the need to, you know, bully people or to show off how tough he is. Well, In the moment, Giles will absolutely deliver and he's not insecure about himself. I feel like this kind of thing comes from this essential um, insecurity that Riley has that he needs to throw whatever weight he has around a little. Let me I ask don't you think this, it, it reflects well on him. If we'd stripped out Dracula and replaced him with, let's say, Lyle Gorch, <laughs> if we had had a storyline that wasn't as dependent on Buffy's fascination with this, you know, ethereal undead monster, had he not been fueled by either a primary jealousy over Buffy and Dracula or the obligations of his role as the, you know, Jonathan Harker stand-in within this version of Which the Which is a reference that I don't, exactly. I don't see, I don't understand. If yeah. we weren't mm-hmm. doing the Dracula story at all, would Riley have acted the same way in this scene? I don't know. I honestly yeah, don't. But the one question. thing, though, that I, I'm liking less and less about Riley is that oh, this is always about him and his ability to protect her from something rather than him being concerned about her. If he was going to Spike and saying, Buffy's, you know, hunting in the middle of the night, there's something going on. Do you know you've been around Slayers? Do you know? Any-? If it was about her and his concern for her rather than about his concern for his ability to hold on to her. It feels like it's like Riley's problems always start with a a very tight focus on himself Mm -hmm. rather than on her, which I think is just something in Riley that I've, I've never liked. I think that he and Buffy, as we've discussed before, just diminish each other. Well, good news. We'll have part of that. Lots of opportunities to talk about that particular problem in the weeks ahead. At home, Buffy sleeps as mist seeps through the window, coalescing into Dracula as Buffy wakes. At his command, she pulls her hair back, revealing the scar on her neck, which Angel left in graduation day, and which presumably existed on top of the scar that the master left in Prophecy Girl. I guess. Because she doesn't seem to have a scar on the other side. Well, Maybe the heals, master didn't leave a scar. <laughs> she heals really quickly. So True. the fact that we haven't seen this scar in the year or so since. It has been 15, since... 16 months since graduation day, though. Yeah, we've seen her neck quite a bit. We have not seen this scar <laughs> at all. So apparently, what I, I, I see this as, dra- from Dracula's POV, we have the ability to see a scar that is maybe not always it's, it's visible in another context. Okay, I'll so take that's, that. that's, that's my headcanon to make that work. In any case, Enchanted Buffy doesn't resist as Dracula bites her. The next morning, she wakes and finds the fresh puncture wounds on her neck. She puts on a scarf to hide her shame, then goes to the Scooby research party at Giles's. What do we think of that long, interminable scene with Dracula? It I, I don't know. Is it all reference? Is that what it is? It's just, she's yeah. got her under a thrall, and she you know, submits to him. But he also says, well, he is unworthy because he let you go. Which is exactly what Dracula does. He takes a little taste and then leaves. It's seduction, though. He's he's trying to seduce her. He's trying to make her want to submit to him, which is a, a right. point that we'll textually address later in the episode. It's an important part of the Dracula story that didn't turn into an important part of the vampire myth in general mm-hmm. is the importance of free will. There are elements of the Dracula story that speak to much older stories mm-hmm. based on, you know, witches, witchcraft, fairy, that kind of thing, that that address the the complicity of the victim. The victim Free will has and to choice. Want it. You have to stare into the abyss and exactly. then it stares back into you. Yeah. So he's trying to make Buffy want what he offers her mm-hmm. and is apparently fairly successful. There is some unfortunate kind of 
slut-shaming overtone yeah to mm-hmm. the covering up of the scarf and the being outed by riley in the courtyard shortly yeah some of that stuff is a little unpleasant but mostly it's unpleasant just because it doesn't it doesn't feel like it earns its place yeah i just don't think it sits well in the buffy verse and i think that's the essential problem is that we're taking these two universes that just don't work well together and we're smashing them into the same space mm. and it has ragged edges at the party, Willow sums up their discovery so far as Xander tries to cover for his newfound enthusiasm for Dracula. Drank's all about the seduction, which is interesting but clearly irrelevant information, right? Xander eats a spider and Buffy leaves, ready to do what must be done. But Riley chases after her, pulls off the scarf, and reveals the bite mark. He is setting a new low bar for that peculiarly Riley narcissistic jealousy. <laughs> It's it's yeah. not a great moment for him. No, it's really not. And if this is primarily in service of the reference, or if this is primarily a response to the thrall, then that's a bad choice. Because mm-hmm. we kind of need Riley to be as likable as he can be. We need to be as Team Buffy and Riley as we can possibly be. Yeah. Because this is the start of season five, and they had the feedback from season four, and they knew that Riley was not a popular character, Mm -hmm. and the relationship was not a positive one. That's not the choice I would have made. Well, I kind of feel like we're supposed to not like him. I kind of feel like we're supposed to, like, they went in the other direction. Rather than trying to make him likable, they're making him less and less likable, but deliberately this time. That's what I've always felt. Then we need to not have Buffy fold. Because that's just terrible if she fights back yeah Yeah, no you're you're entirely right riley accuses her of transferring her feelings for angel onto dracula himself she shouldn't face him again instead she'll take shelter at xander's which will be perfectly safe riley and giles will track him down and willow and taro will seal buffy's house against further intrusion which only happened because joyce invited him inside that's a cute scene that's not really necessary. <laughs> it's kind of cute, you know, because we have this. Well, girls, you just don't understand how difficult it is to date. Sometimes you feel like giving up on men altogether. And it's a cute little, oh, the lesbians, right, you but know. but that's not how sexuality works. You don't decide to be a lesbian. Exactly. Because you've run out of choices among the single men of Sunnydale. And I understand that it's also like, how did Dracula get in? Well, of course, Joyce invited him in. Because if there's a vampire in town that wants to get into Buffy's <laughs> house, all he needs to do is just chat up Joyce for a moment. The way that Angel did. The way that I think Spike got invited in. Yeah. No, Buffy invited Spike in oh, the that's first true. time. That's, that's right. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, Joyce will just host all the vampires. But also, she was put under a thrall. So we have that. It's kind of a cute joke. Um, there's also kind of an interesting way in which we're dealing with uh with willow and tara sort of in the background on this we have this uh something of a three beat with riley's jealous of the the thrall that dracula has on Mm -hmm. buffy and xander's jealous of the way anya talks about dracula um and then when willow talks about you know how sexy dracula is tara seems actually more just kind of interested like hmm rather than jealous so we see kind of like that strength yeah. of that core relationship that that tara is secure enough in herself and the only one who's secure enough out of these three couples um to just say hey that's interesting you know and not, not really sure be put I off it by that it way. i really sure did maybe I, i'm the only one i'm not sure i read tara's line as being 
completely okay with it. She was less jealous than Riley and Xander, but she seems to be a less jealous person than well, Riley and Xander. Well, she's more secure, and it's a more secure relationship. I kind of, I liked that beat where she was almost like, yeah, I can see that. You know? I, I like that interpretation. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure that, that I read it in quite the same That's way. That's what I but... saw. Everybody can hop onto the forums and let us know what they saw in that. I, th- I saw that as a, as kind of a nice contrast, although we, we get it for a nanosecond, and we don't hold on it. We don't pay any much attention to it at all. Yeah. Um, but uh, but I kind of liked it. In Xander's basement, Anya is complaining about being excluded, but not for long. Xander locks her up in a closet, then takes Buffy to Dracula, as arranged. That's it for Anya in this episode. Mm-hmm. Stuffed just, in a closet. Just not much of anything, really. It is unfortunate. It's a, a waste of Emma Caulfield, who is brilliant. Yeah. In an episode in which we go a long way out of our way to return agency and necessity to Giles, we're still working on the Anya problem. Yeah, yeah, giving Anya a role that actually works. Yeah, I'm not sure that's a problem we're ever going to be able to fix. Dracula is brooding by a fireplace when they show up in the castle, and it turns out that Buffy's maybe a little more enthralled than she previously thought. Outside, Riley and Giles notice a new addition to Sunnydale's already rather fluid geography, a giant gothic castle. They head inside to investigate, watched from the shadows by a vampire. What do you think of the somewhat metatextual joke about the aforementioned fluid geography? <laughs> I've lived in Sunnydale a couple of years. I've never noticed this giant creepy castle. <laughs> Big honking castle. I I don't know. Is that Does he just spontaneously grow a castle from the ground wherever nope. he goes? Is that part of the story? It's just that when he lives somewhere, he nope. lives in a castle? The inciting incident for Bram Stoker's original novel is a real estate deal whereby he is buying a castle in England. But a castle that previously existed though yes generally when you sell real estate you want the building to previously exist to previously exist so in this case we have a castle that sprung up from nothing which gives uh, that romani magic hey if they can make angel soul do the two-step shuffle then i believe they're (laughs) capable of anything including manifesting a gothic castle in sunny california yeah i'm more interested in what happens to the castle after this episode it's a bouncy castle well we'll talk about a possible alternate interpretation of this episode in just a few minutes sure. do you like the scene though the, the the beat as a joke does it work for you no not really i, I maybe because of the reference it may be because i'm already annoyed with riley so riley <laughs> being cute is not exactly what i'm in the mood for at the That's moment fair. i don't know Last night, Buffy tells Dracula, didn't mean anything. He does his whole Child of Darkness speech again, but Buffy's self-control is cracking. Riley lays out Xander with a single punch, while Giles falls through a door, lampshades his tendency toward unconsciousness, and is then approached by the three sisters, Dracula's classic trio of backup singers. This isn't the worst date that Giles has ever had. (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) Dracula slits open his own wrist, offering the blood to Buffy a temptation. She doesn't know who or what she is, he says. Buffy hesitates, then drinks the blood, flashing immediately to visions of the hunt and of the first slayer. She knocks Dracula backward, no longer under his control. This, it turns out, is her true nature. And they fight. (laughs) That, though the execution is a little clumsy and a little slow, certainly... I love that beat. It's a powerful moment. And of course, we get this reference back to what Tara told Buffy in um, in Restless. You think you know what you are, what's to come. Mm-hmm. You haven't even begun. I love that reference. 
I so wish it hadn't been Dracula. I so wish that this drinking of the vampire blood just enough to taste had been something that Buffy, that we had related to Buffy's hunting, that there's something dark there that she's searching for that she can't find. I wish that she'd had more agency in this whole thing um, rather than just being under his thrall. Um, but I have to say, like, this is the moment where this episode really comes together. I love, she looks at it. She makes the decision. She drinks it. We see these flashes. Um, of the first layer, that that connection back to, again, everything we've been talking about in season four about identity. We're, we're mm-hmm. pulling those threads tighter and through this season as well. Um, I think that it's really very cool. It just hates yeah. the Dracula. Of it. That's the interesting break mm-hmm. in this story, I think, is that we spent a lot of time in season four figuring out who Buffy was. And now we're figuring out the other half of her identity. Yeah. Or at least posing questions about the other half of her identity. It's a powerful moment that is allowed to stand in its complexity because yay buffy's not under the thrall of dracula anymore yay she's kicking his ass now Mm -hmm. these are good things she arrived at this point by tasting vampire blood yeah and that's generally something that we've associated with the bad guys in the buffy verse up until now yeah so i really like that tension i really like that that internal conflict mm-hmm. and i really like the weight with which it foreshadows the conversation with between buffy and giles at the end of the episode mm-hmm. i like the justification that we get for giles's new role for buffy's new quest her yeah. new desire to to mm-hmm. find out more about the first layer and about her origins it's a great complicated challenging moment for me i'm past the point of being bothered by dracula at yeah. this point, it, mm-hmm. it works really quite well. If she wasn't under the thrall, it would be a very different kind of story. The fact yeah. that it's a magical breaking of this, this you know, domination of her will works really quite well for me. Well, she's already chasing her own darkness. And the thing that I love at the end is that she's, you know, she is given her agency again. She is actively in pursuit, figuring out who she is. Mm. But it's because of this moment of being under the thrall, under the control of somebody else. And I would have rather seen Buffy have a little more agency in that moment. Like that she's drawn into it as as something within her in her own darkness that is calling out to his I think had it been a stumble for her rather than something over which she has absolutely no control. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I think it would have worked better for me. I can I can see that. I mean, we're getting perilously close to just telling a completely different story with a, with a completely different I'm emphasis. I'm not sure I have a problem with no, that No, again, that, that is a path <laughs> that you can walk. taking the good parts of this story into a stronger direction might have worked better. Sure, but if you've decided already to do the Dracula story, I think that this is an effective way of leveraging the reference, of actually making the reference serve actually the work story for you're you. telling yeah. within the span of this episode. Yeah, which is the one place where that happens. Pretty much, mm-hmm. yeah. Riley finds Giles and throws him across, rescuing him from his obvious and immediate peril, much like Lancelot rescues Galahad from Castle Anthrax. <laughs> Buffy and Dracula continue to fight, Buffy finally gets the upper hand, only for Dracula to fade to mist. He moves across the room, but she gives chase, grabbing her stake, ready to strike. When he returns to physical form, she dusts him, just in time for Riley, Giles, and Xander to run in. Xander is done with being the butt monkey, and for all of his comic timing earlier in the episode... This is the standout moment for Xander for me. This is honestly, out of the whole run of Buffy, one of my favorite Xander moments. I'm sick of being the guy who eats the insects and gets the funny syphilis. (laughs) (laughs) 
You can understand it, though. I can certainly understand it. And it has been a lot of his role throughout. It's almost a metatextual, you know, commentary on the role of Xander throughout, you know, this mm-hmm. uh, this series. Um, it's really fun. I love Nicholas Brendan. I think that, honestly, this episode is one of his strongest and one of my favorite performances of mm-hmm. his, even certainly. if I don't necessarily care for a lot of the material, um, as far as it extends to the entirety of the Buffyverse. I love what he does with, with everything he's given in this. And this is one of my favorite Xander moments ever. When he says, that's it. I'm drawing the line. <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic. And it also ties into this ongoing you know, study of identity. It's exactly. It's all about how Xander views himself and how he's now acutely aware the world views him. Yes. We'll talk about how well that sticks through the rest of the season. Sure we will. As we progress, Riley teases Giles about the three sisters and they all wander off into the night to live happily ever after. Dracula returns, as he is wont to do, only to be staked again by Buffy and then intimidated into wisping away in misty form. That is my least favorite joke. Well, here's the thing. Um, When she dusts him and she has ended Dracula, the world is safe again. Everything's okay. The magic falls. uh, Xander is no longer under the thrall. Great. Then he reforms and she makes the reference. I've seen your movies. I know Mm -hmm. that happens. And then he starts to reform again. It seems to me that at this point, we need to find a new way to kill Dracula instead of but just go not, home and let him be somebody we're else's problem. not interested problem. in actually closing out the story because it's one thing for her to stake Dracula twice and then, yes, to intimidate him into drifting away into the moonlit night. Nobody ever mentions the three sisters again. Yeah. There are three vampires in that building. Buffy is still the slayer, right? Yeah. I mean, she still does have something of a professional obligation to take care of this problem. We're letting all of these people just go off and become somebody else's problem. in the end, it's not about the story. It's about the reference. Yeah. We completely bail on the end of this story. And that's, for me, when I was talking earlier about this being one of the most frustrating and disappointing Mm -hmm. season openers, it was specifically this moment that I was remembering. Yeah. It's the fact that the story just bails on its own premise. Bails as hard as any Buffy episode has ever bailed. Yeah. Right at the end. Right at the last We never deliberately let somebody just go off and continue to kill and... A line of dialogue. Yeah. And it's not as though we couldn't have had Buffy stake Dracula and then had the entire castle, you know, fall apart, turn to dust, the other vampires turn to dust. We right. could have done something. Yeah. Instead, to close we do that out. nothing because we're preserving the reference. Right. Which is just a pretty resolutely bad choice. Mm-hmm. The next day, though, things get much, much better. Giles and Buffy finally sit down to talk. Buffy hasn't needed a watcher in quite some time, and she's been driven by the need to hunt by her contact with the first slayer. There is darkness in her power, and she needs to understand it. She has never needed Giles more. It's a great scene. Mm-hmm. Just a great scene. Yeah. We've talked a lot about how this establishes a new status quo for Giles, at least, or begins a new arc, Yes, we might say. I just love that scene. Yeah. Well, what this does is it closes out this Giles struggling with his identity, with his role, with his mm-hmm. purpose, and gives him something to work toward. Also, Buffy. Buffy, from the beginning, I don't want to be a vampire slayer. I want to be a cheerleader. I want to be a normal girl. I just want to have a life, right? Mm -hmm. Now she is in active pursuit 
of her power, of understanding her power. And this is part of the reason why I am a, a late Slayer girl. I am a, you know, a late Buffy um, season girl. I like where she is mm-hmm. actively working with her power, right. where she's not resisting it or trying to, you know, shuffle it aside. This is her identity and she is going to figure out what it means. Because even after Kendra showed up in season two in the wake of Buffy's death in Prophecy Girl, mm-hmm. even when Buffy began to claim her role as Slayer, it was never about this, you know, mystical prophesied line of, of champions and defenders. Mm-hmm. It was always about Buffy specifically. It yeah. was about her job, her task, her role. And when we looked at that role in contrast, whether it was in contrast with Kendra or it was in contrast with Faith, it was still quintessentially about Buffy. Now she is embracing not just the job, but the lineage. Yes. And mm-hmm. that's that's so important. It's well, so vital. When we talk so much about how Angel as a series is about being and Buffy is about becoming, yeah. this is exactly what we're talking about. This is, is her another path. understanding yeah. of this, this greater world in which she... She reigns, you know, in which she is a huge and powerful part of this story. And while that is broadly, generally true and interesting and compelling and will remain with us all the way through to the end of season seven, it also speaks to the season arc. Yes. If you've seen season five before, you know how it ends. This is the first step along that path. Along that path, absolutely. It's an impossibly effective and powerful and well-structured piece of storytelling. And it's a firm statement. This is what we're doing. We know what we're doing and we're following this path and it's very, very cool. Speaking of firm statements, back home, Buffy tells her mother that she's leaving. She's going on a date with Riley, but in her room, a dark-haired girl is going through her stuff. Buffy asks what she's doing and Joyce calls from the other room, telling her that she ought to take her sister with her. Both Buffy and the girl respond with a whiny, Mom! But we cut to credits. There's your cliffhanger ending. Uh Uh-huh. Let's talk about that first. (laughs) Let's talk about the cliffhanger ending. How did it work for you the first time you saw it? The first time I saw it, you know, it had this there's this thing that happens in a lot of television shows where we introduce a sibling and we bring in a kid (laughs) and it invigorates a show that is waning and it felt like a nod toward this this very tired and almost universally detrimental trope that that a lot of television shows very cheaply go to when they bring on a new little kid who's going to be really really cute um so my first response to this was extreme trepidation this was the first show the first Joss Whedon show I'd ever encountered I'd ever engaged with I didn't know what to expect and I wasn't sure how much I trusted the writers with that and you immediately begin indexing thinking well okay I suppose the show never said that there wasn't another sister living with Hank with living with the dad sure right we could have that's maybe, possible maybe possibly there's enough space within the frame of Buffy that this is a tolerable inclusion and in an episode where we are setting so many of our characters on new paths where Mm -hmm. we are structuring a new status quo whether that is you know actively giles and xander and buffy or passively riley and spike you know we can maybe make allowances for a new character being folded into the existing buffy verse of course that's not what we get ultimately it is much smarter much more progressive and provocative Yes. Than that, I, it's going to be really interesting to talk about Dawn as we move through the season. Well, without getting into a, too much of a spoiler space, um, there is, uh, let's say, within the fandom, 
I, I don't think there's anybody who has meh feelings about Dawn. I think people feel very strongly, usually either one way or the other. And I think most tend to dislike her. Dawn, um, generally, if there is a list of least favorite main characters, yeah. it's generally Dawn and Riley duking it out for bottom of the list. Generally, yeah. Um, and here's the thing. I actually am very pro-Dawn for reasons that once we go through all the rest of these episodes, I don't want to be too spoilery about it, uh, I, I will I will defend um, as we go through. Um, so I just want to leave that out as a comfort to those of you who are also pro-Dawn, <laughs> this small contingent, um, and a warning to those of you who hate Dawn, uh, you will need to set up yourselves as just shouting at me throughout the rest of this. No. You're going to have to come into the forums and You're shout me down. going to find more than a few opportunities to be very, very critical of Dawn. No, I actually, I do. I really understand the people who hate Dawn. Yeah. I totally do as a character, as a that- function in story. I think that she yeah. is... Um, fascinating and daring and and yes. so interesting. So from a writing perspective, I am pro Dawn. Yeah, if like, you look hardcore. past the character to her narrative purpose, yeah, then that's yeah, very I think cool. I think you make your peace with her much more readily. I think that you can. I think that you can. So not to set up a fight. There should never be a fight. I don't you know condone that. But those of you who are anti Dawn, um, I am going to work really really hard to to help you see her from maybe a more positive light oh. uh, throughout this uh, this story. I don't and want to be too spoilery. I've, we didn't want to talk that much about Dawn. No, but, I, yeah. well, there's no way to not talk it's about so Dawn. Hard. This is in the broadest. Yeah. Possible terms. I mean, I've never been rampantly anti Dawn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and given how much I came to like Riley, or at least appreciate Riley mm-hmm. through much of season four, I'm actually really looking forward to watching this again. Yeah. To and see, seeing what we can yeah. discover. Because you're right, narratively speaking, this is this is audacious. It's it is, this is so bold. Some I high concept it. storytelling. Yeah. There's a lot here to appreciate. Let's put a pin in Dawn for now until next week. We'll talk more about her after next week's episode. Let's return our attention to Buffy versus Dracula. Mm -hmm. Given our legion of criticisms, is it surprising how much we appreciate this episode? I don't think so. I I think that the bulk of the episode is actually really good. And even the stuff that leans so hard on those references, which absolutely don't work for me and don't seem to work really that well for even you. Mm. Um, I think that the writing itself is really good. I mean, it's focused, it's structured. There's there's funny stuff in there. There's good character moments. When it doesn't just descend into into cliche, which it does so often when we get lines from Dracula. His dialogue is so much flatter Mm -hmm. than all the other dialogue in the episode, and that's coupled with a flat performance. He's just ineffective within the frame, particularly when your entire story rests upon him being magnetic Mm -hmm. and charming and seductive and dark in an enticing way. But he's also magically those things. So the fact that we don't see it just means we're not under his thrall. Those (laughs) under his thrall could... I mean, honestly, you have to kind of bend... To, because that's part of what this whole story is but about, that it's a thrall. You the know? seduction of darkness. We've seen that more than once in the Buffyverse. We've seen it from Angel. We've seen it between Spike and Drusilla. Mm-hmm. We've seen, we can do that yeah. in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. We've already done that in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. To try to do that consciously, textually, with this anemic writing and, and thin, cliched performance mm-hmm. is a wasted opportunity. You could have done the Dracula story. You could have had someone show up, but you need to cast someone with just the world's most abundant charisma. Yeah. You need a, 
I don't even know who you would cast. You need another James Marsters. <laughs> you need someone off. with just yeah, an enormous, someone with a tremendous amount of charisma, dark charm. But I think that because we are leaning so hard on those references, that and I think that's why the writing gets flat it's, in those yeah, moments. It's because we're leaning on the references and not doing more with them. We're not living in a Buffy world. We're we're creating this. It's again the, those raw edges between the Dracula story and the Buffy world. Right, except for Buffy tasting his blood, which is the moment where the whole intertextuality of this episode. That's when it works. Yeah. Because we are making the reference. We are you know having the illusion. We are broadly pastiching you know vampire myth in general dracula myth specifically we're doing all of those things but we're also doing something else we're putting it to a use to a purpose Mm -hmm. that the rest of the stuff just doesn't have and that's when it becomes interesting that's when it works absolutely Mm -hmm. so it is for me more than anything else it's a wasted opportunity Mm -hmm. it's also thankfully largely skippable it is largely skippable. I absolutely think so. There's some great stuff in this episode, but when it comes right down to it, this is one of those episodes that I often completely forget about when I'm thinking about the whole of Buffy. Yeah. Now, there is theory that <laughs> the reason that this episode feels so unlike the rest of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the reason that most of our major players feel a little off-model, if not completely separated from our understanding you know riley in particular suffers i think this is not a riley with whom we are familiar i think we can pretty much see how we get there from here you know how he fits with the riley of our previous experience but he's new and weird and joyce even isn't perfect Mm -hmm. is it possible that the forcible inclusion of Dawn, and I won't talk about the mechanism by which that takes place, is it possible that the forcible inclusion of Dawn actually has more consequence than we realize? Has rippled out into... Do you remember when we were talking about the Zeppo? We very unpopularly said that (laughs) the Zeppo makes a great deal more sense if you see this episode as taking place from within Xander's POV. Very deep within Xander's POV, yes. What we see is not... Exactly, objectively, what happened. It's an exaggerated Zanderian perspective on what happened. I feel like there may be something similar in this episode. I feel like we may be able to excuse some of the Dracula stuff by crediting it to actual magic. The reason that there is now suddenly a gothic castle in Mm -hmm. Sunnydale is because of Dawn, not because of Dracula. And the the magical effect of this inserted reality yes. into a previously existing reality. I think without going too deep into spoiler <laughs> territory, we are really, really... Let's spoiler tag that discussion over on the forum, I think. Yes, we can, spoiler we can talk tag that discussion there. and you can go in, in deeper. But my headcanon is that there's something to that, is that yeah. there's something to... An insertion of an alternate reality, which is which is what we're seeing happen. The, in, the reason in that this five. is wacky, yeah, that that sort of had a ripple effect on the surface of reality during that time period. So maybe this story didn't happen within the Buffyverse as we saw it happen. That this is an exaggerated, heightened, somewhat slapdash memory of 
something that may have happened. That may have happened. I think that uh, there is an there is a headcanon <laughs> argument that you can make for that. I don't think that it would be supported by the people who actually created the story. Um, well, I don't death think of that author, it would be. I mean. Death of the author, absolutely. <laughs> I think that if you are more comfortable um, using that inserted reality magic as an explanation for why this is so weird, um, I think that you could go with that. I have to say, honestly, that's my personal headcanon. You could also expand that whole theory to account for many of the changes between season four and season five of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. A little bit, sure. Then let's wrap this thing up and put this episode on our big list of every Buffy episode ever. It's our first season five episode, Lonnie. Where does it go? Oh, my goodness. Okay, now <laughs> let's just go ahead and get it out in the open. I believe I've mentioned this before, but season five is my favorite of all the Buffy seasons. So I am so excited to be here, finally. Um, that said, you know, you have to look at things objectively. Uh, Buffy versus Dracula has never been one of my favorites. And going in, I probably would have expected it to kind of bottom out. Okay. <laughs> We've had four season openers so far, yeah. obviously. None of them are particularly high on the list. The highest we have so far is When She Was Bad, the season two opener, which is at number 29 on our list. The Freshman, the season four opener, goes in at number 35 on our list. And the season three opener goes in at 47 on our list. And Welcome to the Hellmouth and The Harvest, the first season opener, goes in at number 52 on our list. This is the best season opener so far, right? Right. The exact opposite of what we predicted uh, yes. last week. Yes. Um, so I actually would put this fairly high on the list. I see it in kind of a um, a restless superstar sort of, you know, 15 to 20 area. Um, yeah, that's maybe the upper limit of where... Zeppo, The Wish. It feels like a Bizarro World episode. It does. It has it that does. feel to but it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that all Bizarro World episodes have to Hang out in the same together. neighborhood. No, that's absolutely true. But I think that these are these are good, you know, fairly solid episodes that we have a lot of respect for. Um, I feel like it goes somewhere in that territory. It's What's good is really, really good. And what's Bad is not so bad that it's well. Know, there are terrible. some things that are that bad. I mean, there are some things. Riley taking the scarf off of Buffy, Xander eating the bugs, mm, yeah. Giles falling into the pit full of women, <laughs> and then yeah. this complete whiff of a resolution at the end of the episode. This complete gesture toward closing up right. the story is. That's really problematic. But the good stuff is really, really no, good. the good stuff is really good. Buffy's kind of struggle with her own inner darkness, Willow and Giles, then of course Giles and Buffy at the end. This whole resetting of purpose, this statement of theme for the season. Yep. I think there's a lot of strength in this episode. And I think that quite honestly, the strengths outweigh the weaknesses. I think they do too. I think it's going to go in certainly in the top half. I'm not terribly far away from you. I mm -hmm. could see it going in. I think my pitch would probably be the new 21, right? Under Band Candy, right above What's My Line Part 1 and 2. Okay, you know what? I can go with that. That's I a can... little lower than you were thinking. It is a little lower, um, because I think when I've been so pleasantly surprised by something I expected to hate, <laughs> um, that may elevate it a little bit in my estimation. But I can see it absolutely being in that neighborhood. I think that those are very good, solid episodes sure. with 
some issues, you know, it's, when it comes to blending it in with the rest of Buffy. It remains, as I feel we say every week, a very top-heavy list. Yeah. You know, you have to go a long way down before you're you even get a bad episode. that episode. Right, yeah. But I think that's that's a reasonable place for it to go, a place that's that's representative of its strengths, but also the weaknesses of its concept. And it really is mostly, you know, bad from the jump here. I think this was flawed conceptually. That decision to bring Dracula into the Buffyverse Mm -hmm. was a mistake. Yeah, I think so too. And had we taken a different path, we could easily be talking about a top 10 episode. Yeah. Because this is an episode that ultimately is at war with itself. Mm -hmm. The good stuff wins out, but it's not a clean victory. Mm -hmm. Let's put it in there. Number 21 on the list. Buffy versus Dracula goes in between band candy and what's my line part one and two. A promising start for season five. I think so. I'm looking forward to this. But that's not the only season we're beginning this week. On Thursday, we'll be back to look at the first episode of the second season of Angel Judgment. And that's an episode I'm really looking forward to. Oh, yeah. I can't wait to get into the weeds in the second season of Angel. So much fun stuff to discuss. And when we're talking about resetting toward a new purpose, Mm -hmm. Angel has some stuff to say on the matter. Oh, sure does. And we'll discuss it all on Thursday. Please take your discussions, guys, on over to the forum. We will, I promise you, talk at length about Dawn next week. We will have a great deal to say. That's going to be a really, really fun discussion. Until then, though, I'm Alistair Stevens. And I'm Lonnie Diane Rich. And this is Dustin. Dustin.